Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tonight, I will be continuing the story of Little Lord Fauntleroy. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. After this, the more he saw of little Lord Fauntleroy, the more of a surprise he found him. He knew very little about children, 
though he had seen plenty of them in England, fine, handsome, rosy girls and boys, who were strictly taken care of by their tutors and governesses, and who were sometimes shy, but sometimes a trifle boisterous, but never very interesting to a ceremonious, rigid old lawyer. Perhaps his personal interest in the little Lord Fauntleroy's fortunes made him notice Seddy more than he had noticed other children. But, however that was, he certainly found himself noticing him a great deal. Seddy did not know he was being observed, and he only behaved himself in his ordinary manner. He shook hands with Mr. Havisham in his friendly way when they were introduced to each other, and he answered all his questions with the unhesitating readiness with which he answered Mr. Hobbs. He was neither shy nor bold, and when Mr. Havisham was talking to his mother, the lawyer noticed that he listened to the conversation with as much interest as if he had been quite grown up. He seems to be a very mature little fellow, Mr. Havisham said to the mother. I think he is, in some things, she answered. He has always been very quick to learn, and he has lived a great deal with grown-up people. He has a funny little habit of using long words and expressions he has read in books or has heard others use, but he is very fond of childish play. I think he is rather clever, but he is a very boyish little boy sometimes. The next Mr. Havisham met him, he saw that this last was quite true. As his coupe turned the corner, he caught sight of a group of small boys who were evidently much excited. Two of them were about to run a race, and one of them was his young lordship, and he was shouting and making as much noise as the noisiest of his companions. He stood side by side with another boy, one little red leg advanced a step. One to make ready, he yelled the starter, two to be steady, three and away. Mr. Havisham found himself leaning out of the window of his coupe with a curious feeling of interest. He really never remembered having seen anything quite like the way in which his lordship's lordly little red legs flew up behind his knickerbockers and tore over the ground as he shot out in the race at the signal word. He shut his small hands and set his face against the wind, his bright hair streaming out behind. Hooray, said Errol, all the boys shouted, dancing and shrieking with excitement. Hooray, Billy Williams. Hooray, Seddy. Hooray, hooray. I really believe he's going to win, said Mr. Havisham. The way in which the red legs flew and flashed up and down, the shrieks of the boys, the wild efforts of Billy Williams, whose brown legs were not to be despised, as they followed closely in the rear of the red legs, made him feel some excitement. I really, I really can't help hoping he will win, he said, with an apologetic sort of cough. At that moment, the wildest yell of all went up from the dancing, hopping boys. With one last frantic leap, the future Earl of Dorincourt had reached the lamppost at the end of the block and touched it, just two seconds before Billy Williams flung himself at it, panting. Three cheers for Sediero, yelled the little boys. Hooray for Sediero. Mr. Havisham drew his head in at the window of his coupe and leaned back with a dry smile. Bravo, Lord Fauntleroy, he said. As his carriage stopped before the door of Mrs. Errol's house, 
the victor and the vanquished, were coming toward it, attended by the clamoring crew. Cedric walked by Billy Williams and was speaking to him. His elated little face was very red, his curls clung to his hot, moist forehead, his hands were in his pockets. You see, he was saying, evidently with the intention of making defeat easy for his unsuccessful rival. I guess I won because my legs are a little longer than yours. I guess that was it. You see, I'm three days older than you, and that gives me an advantage. I'm three days older. And this view of the case seemed to cheer Billy Williams so much that he began to smile on the world again and felt able to swagger a little, almost as if he had won the race instead of losing it. Somehow, Seti Errol had a way of making people feel comfortable. Even in the first flush of his triumphs, he remembered that the person who was beaten might not feel so happy as he did, and might like to think that he might have been the winner under different circumstances. That morning, Mr. Havisham had quite a long conversation with the winner of the race, a conversation which made him smile his dry smile and rub his chin with his bony hand several times. Mrs. Errol had been called out of the parlour, and the lawyer and Cedric were left alone. At first, Mr. Havisham wondered what he would say to his small companion. He had an idea that perhaps it would be best to say several things which might prepare Cedric for meeting his grandfather, and perhaps for the great change that was about to come to him. He could see that Cedric had not the least idea of the sort of thing he was to see when he reached England, or the sort of home that waited for him there. He did not even know yet that his mother was not to live in the same house with him. They had thought it best to let him get over the first shock before telling him. Mr. Havisham sat in an armchair on one side of the open window. On the other side was another still larger chair, and Cedric sat in that and looked at Mr. Havisham. He sat well back in the depths of his big seat, his curly head against the cushioned back, his legs crossed, and his hands thrust deep into his pockets in a quite Mr. Hobbs-like way. He had been watching Mr. Havisham very steadily when his mamma had been in the room, and after she was gone, he still looked at him in respectful thoughtfulness. There was a short silence after Mrs. Errol went out, and Cedric seemed to be studying Mr. Havisham, and Mr. Havisham was certainly studying Cedric. He could not make up his mind as to what an elderly gentleman should say to a little boy who won races and wore short knickerbockers and red stockings on legs which were not long enough to hang over a big chair when he sat well back in it. But Cedric relieved him by suddenly beginning the conversation himself. Do you know, he said, I don't know what an earl is. Don't you? said Mr. Havisham. No, replied Ceddie. And I think when a boy is going to be one, he ought to know, don't you? Well, yes, answered Mr. Havisham. Would you mind, said Ceddie respectfully, would you mind explaining it to me? Sometimes when he used his long words, he did not pronounce them quite correctly. What made him an earl? A king or queen in the first place, said Mr. Havisham. Generally, he is made an earl because he has done some service to his sovereign or some great deed. Oh, said Cedric, that's like the president. Is it? said Mr. Havisham. Is that why your presidents are elected? Yes, answered Ceddie cheerfully. 
When a man is very good and knows a great deal, he's elected president. They have torchlight processions and bands, and everybody makes speeches. I used to think I might perhaps be a president, but I never thought of being an earl. I didn't know about earls, he said, rather hastily, lest Mr. Havisham might feel it impolite in him not to have wished to be one. If I'd known about them, I dare say I should have thought I should like to be one. It is rather different from being a president, said Mr. Havisham. Is it? asked Cedric. How? Are there no torchlight processions? Mr. Havisham crossed his own legs and put the tips of his fingers carefully together. He thought perhaps the time had come to explain matters rather more clearly. An earl is, is a very important person, he began. So is a president, put in Seddy. The torchlight processions are five miles long, and they shoot up rockets, and the band plays. Mr. Hobbs took me to see them. An earl, Mr. Havisham went on, feeling rather uncertain of his ground, is frequently of a very ancient lineage. What's that? asked Seddy. Of very old family, extremely old. Ah, said Cedric, thrusting his hands deeper into his pockets. I suppose that is the way with the apple woman near the park. I dare say she is of ancient Lin lineage. She is so old, it would surprise you how she can stand up. She's a hundred, I should think. And yet she is out there when it rains, even. I'm sorry for her, and so are the other boys. Billy Williams once had nearly a dollar, and I asked him to buy five cents worth of apples from her every day until he had spent it all. That made twenty days, and he grew tired of apples after a week. Then, it was quite fortunate, a gentleman gave me fifty cents, and I bought apples from her instead. You feel sorry for anyone that's so poor and has such ancient lineage. She says hers has gone into her bones, and the rain makes it worse. Mr. Havisham felt rather at a loss as he looked at his companion's innocent, serious little face. I'm afraid you did not quite understand me, he explained. When I said ancient lineage, I did not mean old age. I meant the name of the family has been known in the world a long time. Perhaps for hundreds of years, persons bearing that name have been known and spoken of in the history of their country. Like George Washington, said Seddy. I've heard of him ever since I was born, and he was known about long before that. Mr. Hobbs says he will never be forgotten. That's because of the Declaration of Independence, you know, on the 4th of July. You see, he was a very brave man. The first Earl of Dorincourt, said Mr. Havisham solemnly, was created an Earl 400 years ago. Well, well, said Seddy. That was a long time ago. Did you tell Darius to that? It would interest her very much. We'll tell her when she comes in. She always likes to hear curious things. What else does an earl do, besides being created? A great many of them have helped to govern England. Some of them have been brave men and have fought in great battles in the old days. I should like to do that myself, said Cedric. My papa was a soldier, and he was a very brave man, as brave as George Washington. Perhaps that was because he would have been an earl if he hadn't died. I'm glad earls are brave. That's a great advantage, to be a brave man. Once, I used to be rather afraid of things, in the dark, you know. But when I thought about the soldiers in the Revolution and George Washington, it cured me. 
There's another advantage in being an earl, sometimes, said Mr. Havisham, slowly. And he fixed his shrewd eyes on the little boy with a rather curious expression. Some earls have a great deal of money. He was curious because he wondered if his young friend knew what the power of money was. That's a good thing to have, said Seddy innocently. I wish I had a great deal of money. Do you? said Mr. Havisham. And why? Well, explained Cedric, there are so many things a person can do with money. You see, there's the apple woman. If I were very rich, I should buy her a little tent to put her stall in, and a little stove. And then I should give her a dollar every morning it rained so that she could afford to stay at home. And then, I'd give her a shawl. And you see, her bones wouldn't feel so badly. Her bones are not like our bones. They hurt her when she moves. It's very painful when your bones hurt you. If I were rich enough to do all these things for her, I guess her bones would be all right. And what else would you do if you were rich? Oh, I'd do a great many things. Of course, I should buy dearest all sorts of beautiful things, needlebooks and fans and gold thimbles and rings and an encyclopedia and a carriage so that she needn't have to wait for the streetcars. If she liked pink silk dresses, I should buy her some, but she likes black best. But I'd take her to the big stores and tell her to look round and choose for herself. And then Dick. Who is Dick? asked Mr. Havisham. Dick is a boot black, said his young lordship, quite warming up in his interest in plans. So exciting. He's one of the nicest boot blacks you ever knew. He stands at the corner of a street downtown. I've known him for years. Once when I was very little, I was walking out with Dearest, and she bought me a beautiful ball that bounced, and I was carrying it, and it bounced into the middle of the street where the carriages and horses were, and I was so disappointed, I began to cry. I was very little, and I had kilts on. Dick was blacking a man's shoes, and he said hello, and he ran in between the horses and caught the ball for me, and wiped it off with his coat, and gave it to me, and said, it's all right, young'un. So Darius admired him very much, and so did I. And ever since then, when we go downtown, we talk to him. He says hello, and I say hello, and then we talk a little, and he tells me how trade is. It's been bad lately. And what would you like to do for him, inquired the lawyer, rubbing his chin and smiling a strange smile. Well, said Lord Fauntleroy, settling himself in his chair with a business air, I'd buy Jake out. And who is Jake? Mr. Havisham asked. He's Dick's partner, and he is the worst partner a fellow could have, Dick says so. He isn't a credit to the business, and he isn't square. He cheats, and that makes Dick mad. It would make you mad, you know, if you were blacking boots as hard as you could, and being square all the time, and your partner wasn't square at all. People like Dick, but they don't like Jake, and so sometimes they don't come twice. So if I were rich... I'd buy Jake out and get Dick a sign, which says boss. He says a boss sign goes a long way. And I'd get him some new clothes and new brushes and start him out fair. He says all he wants is to start out fair. There could have been nothing more confiding and innocent than the way in which his small lordship told his little story, quoting his friend Dick's bits of slang in the most candid good faith. He seemed to feel not a shadow of doubt that his elderly companion would be just as interested as he was himself. 
and in truth, Mr. Havisham was beginning to be greatly interested, but perhaps not quite so much in Dick and the Apple Woman as in this kind little lordling whose curly head was so busy under its yellow thatch with good-natured plans for his friends and who seemed somehow to have forgotten himself altogether. Is there anything, he began, what would you get for yourself if you were rich? Lots of things, answered Lord Fauntleroy briskly, but first I'd give Mary some money for Bridget, that's her sister with twelve children and a husband out of work. She comes here and cries, and Darest gives her things in a basket, and then she cries again, and says, Blessings be on you for a beautiful lady. And I think Mr. Hollis would like a gold watch and a chain to remember me by, and a pipe. And then I'd like to get a company. A company? exclaimed Mr. Havisham. Like a Republican rally, explained Cedric, becoming quite excited. I'd have torches and uniforms and things for all the boys and myself too. And we'd march, you know, and drill. That's what I should like for myself, if I were rich. The door opened and Mrs. Errol came in. I'm sorry to have been obliged to leave you so long, she said to Mr. Havisham, but a poor woman, who is in great trouble, came to see me. This young gentleman, said Mr. Havisham, has been telling me about some of his friends and what he would do for them if he were rich. Bridget is one of his friends, said Mrs. Errol, and it is Bridget to whom I've been talking in the kitchen. She's in great trouble now because her husband has rheumatic fever. Cedric slipped down out of his big chair. I think I'll go and see her, he said, and ask her how he is. He's a nice man when he is well. I'm obliged to him because he once made me a sword out of wood. He's a very talented man. He ran out of the room and Mr. Havisham rose from his chair. He seemed to have something in his mind which he wished to speak of. He hesitated a moment and then said, looking down at Mrs. Errol, Before I left Dorincourt Castle, I had an interview with the Earl in which he gave me some instructions. He is desirous that his grandson should look forward with some pleasure to his future life in England, and also to his acquaintance with himself. He said that I must let his lordship know that the change in his life would bring him money and pleasures children enjoy. If he expressed any wishes, it was to gratify them, and to tell him that his grandfather had given him what he wished. I am aware that the Earl did not expect anything quite like this, but if it would give Lord Fauntleroy pleasure to assist this poor woman, I should feel that the Earl would be displeased if he were not gratified. For the second time, he did not repeat the Earl's exact words. His Lordship had indeed said, Make the lad understand that I can give him anything he wants. Let him know what it is to be the grandson of the Earl of Dorincourt. Buy him everything he takes a fancy to, let him have money in his pockets, and tell him his grandfather put it there. His motives were far from being good, and if he had been dealing with a nature less affectionate and warm-hearted than little Lord Fauntleroy's, great harm might have been done. And Cedric's mother was too gentle to suspect any harm. She thought that perhaps this meant that a lonely, unhappy old man, whose children were dead, wished to be kind to her little boy and win his love and confidence. And it pleased her very much to think that Cedric would be able to help Bridget. It made her happy to know that the very first result of the strange fortune which had befallen her little boy was that he could do kind things for those who needed kindness. Quite a warm colour bloomed on her pretty young face. Oh, she said, 
That was very kind of the Earl. Cedric will be so glad. He's always been fond of Bridget and Michael. They're quite deserving. I've often wished I'd been able to help them more. Michael is a hard-working man when he is well, but he's been ill a long time and needs expensive medicines and warm clothing and nourishing food. He and Bridget will not be wasteful of what is given then. Mr. Havisham put his thin hand in his breast pocket and drew forth a large pocketbook. There was a strange look in his keen face. The truth was, he was wondering what the Earl of Dorincourt would say when he was told what was the first wish of his grandson that had been granted. He wondered what the cross, worldly, selfish old nobleman would think of it. I do not know that you've realised, he said, that the Earl of Dorincourt is an exceedingly rich man. He can afford to gratify any caprice. I think it would please him to know that Lord Fauntleroy had been indulged in any fancy. If you will call him back and allow me, I shall give him five pounds for these people. That would be twenty-five dollars, exclaimed Mrs. Earle. It will seem like wealth to them. I can scarcely believe that it is true. It is quite true, said Mr. Havisham with his dry smile. A great change has taken place in your son's life. A great deal of power will lie in his hands. Oh, cried his mother, and he is such a little boy, a very little boy. How can I teach him to use it well? He makes me half afraid, my pretty little Seti. The lawyer slightly cleared his throat. It touched his worldly, hard, old heart to see the tender, timid look in her brown eyes. I think, madam, he said, that if I may judge from my interview with Lord Fauntleroy this morning, the next Earl of Dorincourt will think for others as well as for his noble self. He's only a child yet, but I think he may be trusted. Then his mother went for Cedric and brought him back into the parlour. Mr. Havisham heard him talking before he entered the room. It's inflammatory rheumatism, he was saying, and that's the kind of rheumatism that's dreadful. And he thinks about the rent not being paid, and Bridget says that makes the inflammation worse. And Pat could get a place in a store if he had some clothes. His little face looked quite anxious when he came in. He was very sorry for Bridget. Darius said you wanted me, he said to Mr. Havisham. I've been talking to Bridget. Mr. Havisham looked down at him a moment. He felt a little awkward and undecided. As Cedric's mother had said, he was a very little boy. The Earl of Dorincourt, he began, and then he glanced involuntarily at Mrs. Errol. Little Lord Fauntleroy's mother suddenly kneeled down by him and put both her tender arms around his childish body. Seddy, she said, the Earl is your grandpapa, your own papa's father. He's very, very kind and he loves you and wishes you to love him because his sons who were his little boys are dead. He wishes you to be happy and to make other people happy. He's very rich and he wishes you to have everything you would like to have. He told Mr. Havisham so and gave him a great deal of money for you. You can give some to Bridget now, enough to pay her rent and buy Michael everything. Isn't that fine, said he? Isn't he good? And she kissed the child on his round cheek where the bright colour suddenly flashed up in his excited amazement. He looked from his mother to Mr. Havisham. Can I have it now? He cried. Can I give it to her this minute? She's just going. Mr. Havisham handed him the money. It was in fresh, clean greenbacks and made a neat roll. 
Said he flew out of the room with it. Bridget, they heard him shout as he tore into the kitchen. Bridget, wait a minute. Here's some money. It's for you and you can pay the rent. My grandpapa gave it to me. It's for you and Michael. Oh, Master Seti, cried Bridget in an awe-stricken voice. It's twenty-five dollars here. Where's the mistress? I think I shall have to go and explain it to her, Mrs. Errol said. So she too went out of the room, and Mr. Havisham was left alone for a while. He went to the window and stood looking out into the street reflectively. He was thinking of the old Earl of Dorincourt, sitting in his great, splendid, gloomy library of the castle, gouty and lonely, surrounded by grandeur and luxury, but not really loved by anyone, because in all his long life he had never really loved anyone but himself. He had been selfish and self-indulgent and arrogant and passionate. He had cared so much for the Earl of Dorincourt and his pleasures that there had been no time for him to think of other people. All his wealth and power, all the benefits from his noble name and high rank, had seemed to him to be things only to be used to amuse and to give pleasure to the Earl of Dorincourt. And now that he was an old man, all this excitement and self-indulgence had only brought him ill health and irritability and a dislike of the world, which certainly disliked him. In spite of all his splendour, there was never a more unpopular old nobleman than the Earl of Dorincourt, and there could scarcely have been a more lonely one. He could fill his castle with guests if he chose. He could give great dinners and splendid hunting parties, but he knew that in secret the people who would accept his invitations were afraid of his frowning old face and sarcastic, biting speeches. He had a cruel tongue and a bitter nature, and he took pleasure in snaring at people and making them feel uncomfortable when he had the power to do so, because they were sensitive or proud or timid. Mr. Havisham knew his hard, fierce ways by heart, and he was thinking of him as he looked out of the window into the narrow, quiet street. And there rose in his mind, in sharp contrast, the picture of the cherry, handsome little fellow sitting in the big chair and telling his story of his friends, Dick and the apple woman, in his generous, innocent, honest way. And he thought of the immense income, the beautiful, majestic estates, the wealth, and the power for good or evil, which in the course of time would lie in the small, chubby hands little Lord Fauntleroy thrust so deep into his pockets. It will make a great difference, he said to himself. It will make a great difference. Cedric and his mother came back soon after. Cedric was in high spirits. He sat down in his own chair between his mother and the lawyer and fell into one of his quaint attitudes with his hands on his knees. He was glowing with enjoyment of Bridget's relief and rapture. She cried, he said. She said she was crying for joy. I never saw anyone cry for joy before. My grandpapa must be a very good man. I didn't know he was so good a man. It's more, more agreeabler to be an earl than I thought it was. I'm almost glad. I'm almost quite glad I'm going to be one. Cedric's good opinion of the advantages of being an earl increased greatly during the next week. It seemed almost impossible for him to realise that there was scarcely anything he might wish to do, which he could not do easily. In fact, I think it may be said that he did not fully realise it at all. But at least he understood, after a few conversations with Mr. Havisham, that he could gratify all his nearest wishes 
and he proceeded to gratify them with a simplicity and delight which caused Mr. Havisham much diversion. In the week before they sailed for England, he did many curious things. The lawyer long after remembered the morning they went downtown together to pay a visit to Dick, and the afternoon they so amazed the apple woman of ancient lineage by stopping before her stall and telling her she was to have a tent and a stove and a shawl and a sum of money which seemed to her quite wonderful. For I have to go to England and be a lord, explained Cedric, sweet-temperedly. And I shouldn't like to have your bones on my mind every time it rained. My own bones never hurt, so I think I don't know how painful a person's bones can be. But I've sympathized with you a great deal, and I hope you'll be better. She's a very good apple woman, he said to Mr. Havisham, as he walked away, leaving the proprietress of the stall almost gasping for breath, and not at all believing in her great fortune. Once, when I fell down and cut my knee, she gave me an apple for nothing. I've always remembered her for it. You know, you always remember people who are kind to you. It had never occurred to his honest, simple little mind that there were people who could forget kindnesses. The interview with Dick was quite exciting. Dick had just been having a great deal of trouble with Jake and was in low spirits when they saw him. His amazement when Cedric calmly announced that they had come to give him what seemed a very great thing to him and would set all his troubles right almost struck him dumb. Lord Fauntleroy's manner of announcing the object of his visit was very simple and unceremonious. Mr. Havisham was much impressed by its directness as he stood by and listened. The statement that his old friend had become a lord and was in danger of being an earl if he lived long enough caused Dick to so open his eyes and mouth and start that his cap fell off. When he picked it up, he uttered a rather singular exclamation. Mr. Havisham thought it singular, but Cedric had heard it before. I say, he said, what are you giving us? This plainly embarrassed his lordship a little, but he bore himself bravely. Everybody thinks it's not true at first, he said. Mr. Hobbs thought I'd had a sunstroke. I didn't think it was going to like it myself, but I like it better now. I'm used to it. The one who is the Earl now, he's my grandpapa, and he wants me to do anything I like. He's very kind, if he is an earl. And he sent me a lot of money by Mr. Havisham, and I've brought some to you to buy Jake out. And the end of the matter was that Dick actually bought Jake out, and found himself the possessor of the business, and some new brushes, and a most astonishing sign and outfit. He could not believe his good luck any more easily than the apple woman of ancient lineage could believe in hers. He walked about like a boot black in a dream. He stared at his young benefactor and felt as if he might wake up at any moment. He scarcely seemed to realize anything until Cedric put out his hand to shake hands with him before going away. Well, goodbye, he said. And though he tried to speak steadily, there was a little tremble in his voice and he winked his big brown eyes. And I hope trade will be good. I'm sorry I'm going to leave you, but perhaps I shall come back again when I'm an earl. And I wish you'd write to me, because we were always good friends. And if you write to me, here's where you must send your letter. And he gave him a slip of paper. And my name isn't Cedric Errol anymore. It's Lord Fauntleroy. And, and goodbye, Dick. Dick winked his eyes also, and yet they looked rather moist around the lashes. He was not an educated bootblack, and he would have found it difficult to tell 
what he felt just then if he had tried. Perhaps that was why he didn't try and only winked his eyes and swallowed a lump in his throat. I wish he wasn't going away, he said in a husky voice. Then he winked his eyes again. Then he looked at Mr. Havisham and touched his cap. Thank you, sir, for bringing him down here and for what you've done. He's a strange little fellow, he said. I've always thought a heap of him. He's such a game little fellow and such a strange little one. And when they turned around, he stood and looked after them in a dazed kind of way. And there was still a mist in his eyes and a lump in his throat as he watched the gallant little figure marching along by the side of its tall, rigid escort. Until the day of his departure, his lordship spent as much time as possible with Mr. Hobbs in the store. Gloom had settled upon Mr. Hobbs. He was much depressed in spirits. When his young friend brought him in triumph the parting gift of a gold watch and chain, Mr. Hobbs found it difficult to acknowledge it properly. He laid the case on his stout knee and blew his nose violently several times. There's something written on it, said Cedric, inside the case. I told the man myself what to say. From his oldest friend, Lord Fauntleroy, to Mr. Hobbs. When this you see, remember me. I don't want you to forget me. Mr. Hobbs blew his nose very loudly again. I shan't forget you, he said, speaking a trifle huskily, as Dick had spoken. Nor don't you go and forget me when you get among the British aristocracy. I shan't forget you, whoever I was among, answered his lordship. I've spent my happiest hours with you, at least some of my happiest hours. I hope you'll come to see me sometime. I'm sure my grandpapa will be very much pleased. Perhaps he'll write and ask you when I tell him about you. You wouldn't mind his being an earl, would you? I mean, you wouldn't stay away just because he was one, if he invited you to come. I'd come to see you, replied Mr. Hobbs graciously. So it seemed to be agreed that if he received a pressing invitation from the earl to come and spend a few months at Dorincourt Castle, he was to lay aside his prejudices and pack his valets at once. At last, all the preparations were complete. The day came when the trunks were taken to the steamer and the hour arrived when the carriage stood at the door. Then a curious feeling of loneliness came upon the little boy. His mamma had been shut up in her room for some time. When she came down the stairs, her eyes looked wet and large, and her sweet mouth was trembling. Cedric went to her, and she bent down to him, and he put his arms around her, and they kissed each other. He knew something made them both sorry, though he scarcely knew what it was but one tender little thought rose to his lips. We liked this little house, dearest, didn't we? He said. We always will like it, won't we? Yes, yes, she answered in a sweet low voice. Yes, darling. And then they went into the carriage and Cedric sat very close to her. And as she looked back out of the window, he looked at her and stroked her hand and held it close. And then it seemed almost directly they were on the steamer in the midst of the wildest bustle and confusion. Carriages were driving down and leaving passengers. Passengers were getting into a state of excitement about baggage, which had not arrived and threatened to be late. Big trunks and cases were being bumped down and dragged about. Sailors were uncoiling ropes and hurrying to and fro. Officers were giving orders. Ladies and gentlemen and children and nurses were coming on board. Some were laughing and looked happy. Some were silent and sad. Here and there, 
two or three were crying and touching their eyes with handkerchiefs. Cedric found something to interest him on every side. He looked at the piles of rope, at the furled sails, at the tall, tall masts which seemed almost to touch the hot blue sky. He began to make plans for conversing with the sailors and gaining some information on the subject of pirates. It was just at the very last, when he was standing, leaning on the railing of the upper deck and watching the final preparations, enjoying the excitement and the shouts of the sailors and wharfmen, that his attention was called to a slight bustle in one of the groups not far from him. Someone was hurriedly forcing his way through this group and coming toward him. It was a boy with something red in his hand. It was Dick. He came up to Cedric quite breathless. I've run all the way, he said. I've come down to see you off. Trey's been prime. I bought this for you out of what I made yesterday. You can wear it when you get among the swells. I lost the paper when I was trying to get through them fellows downstairs. They didn't want me to let up. It's a handkerchief. He poured it all forth as if in one sentence. A bell rang and he made a leap away before Cedric had time to speak. Goodbye, he panted. Wear it when you get among the swells. And he darted off and was gone. A few seconds later, they saw him struggle through the crowd on the lower deck and rush on shore just before the gangplank was drawn in. He stood on the wharf and waved his cap. Cedric held a handkerchief in his hand. It was of bright red silk ornamented with purple horseshoes and horses' heads. There was a great straining and creaking and confusion. The people on the wharf began to shout to their friends, and the people on the steamer shouted back. Goodbye, goodbye, old fellow, everyone seemed to be saying. Don't forget us. Right when you get to Liverpool, goodbye, goodbye. Little Lord Fauntleroy leaned forward and waved the red handkerchief. Goodbye, Dick, he shouted lustily. Thank you, goodbye. And the big steamer moved away, and the people cheered again. And Cedric's mother drew the veil over her eyes, and on the shore there was left great confusion. But Dick saw nothing save that bright childish face and the bright hair that the sun shone on and the breeze lifted. And he heard nothing but the hearty childish voice saying, Goodbye, Dick, as little Lord Fauntleroy steamed slowly away from the home of his birth to the unknown land of his ancestors. Good night.